Privyet, Jendobre, Ola, I'm John from JetBridge. We're an elite group of software developers from around the world. We solve technically difficult problems for VC funded startups and also invest in hyper growth startups at the seed stage. Our guest today is a serial entrepreneur in the gaming industry with multiple exits to his credit, Taehoon Kim, who is currently CEO of Nway, that's N capital W A Y, makers of the popular Power Rangers MMOG game, which became one of the top games in South Korea, notoriously difficult market for new games. And you know, I'm excited about this podcast because personally, people like Taehoon are an inspiration to me because unlike myself, who went into B2B SaaS to make a buck, Taehoon pursued his passion in a really difficult industry, multiple difficult industries, and has found repeated ways to be successful. So today we're going to learn all his secrets to success. Welcome, Taehoon. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, be on this yeah. And like I said, you know, um, there's so many smart IT folks in the CEE region. Uh, I know they're going to learn a lot from you, especially those that are interested in gaming. Tell us, where did you grow up and uh, how did you end up in San Francisco as a Korean dude? Yeah, so I, I was born in Seoul, Korea. Um, and then we moved to Vancouver, Canada uh, when I was in fourth grade. Um, so and, and, and then we and then I finished high school in, in Canada. Um, and went to Cornell University uh, in New York State. Um, I studied electrical and computer engineering for undergrad um, and did operations research uh, for, for my master's. And then during my graduate studies, um, I met another Cornellian, uh, his name is Jeff Hawkins, who created Palm. I don't know if you remember that, but it was the first mass market handheld computer. Um, so I, I, I really got into Palm and, and PDAs in general. And um, at the time, Samsung, uh, they were the first major mobile phone OEM to license Palm OS to, uh, to make a phone. And this is way before you know, Apple and all that, um, back in like 2001, 2002. Uh, and then I got, yeah, so, I, and so because of my kind of expertise in PDAs and, and Palm OS, I got recruited um, from Samsung. And I, I moved to uh, Seoul, Korea. I worked at the headquarters. Um, and the team I was in uh, was called New Business Development Team, uh, and, and that's the team that started the, uh, the smartphone business. Um, and I ended up uh, taking on a project that was a, a gaming phone, um, gaming smartphone. Um, and you know, I was going around the world trying to get content for that. Um, and that's how I got into the game industry. Eventually, I ended up leaving Samsung to start my own um, to get into game uh, to, the, to get into the game uh, game industry. And then uh, when I was starting my own company, um, my one of my investors actually said, "Hey, like maybe you should move to the to the Bay Area uh, with your employees." Um, and so they ended up uh, incubating me um, at their office space in, in Sandal Road, and that's how I ended up moving to um, San Francisco Bay Area in 2011. Okay, you mentioned Samsung, aka the Korean mothership. Um, Samsung's <laughs> pop, you know, products are super popular in the CEE region. I mean, obviously all over the world, but especially the CEE region. Air yeah. conditioners, fridges, microwaves, washer, dryer, phones, of course, computers, tablets, what have you. Um, it's a big brand in the CEE region. What's the difference to you having worked on both sides of the planet, working for a Korean company like Samsung? versus, say, working in a Silicon Valley startup? 
big differences, not only culturally between the two countries, but also startup versus a big, fast-growing company. Um, when I joined Samsung, they were in this tornado of growth. They had just launched, and this is back in 2002, they had just launched their first color flip phone, those small phones. It was fashionable at that time to have the smallest phone possible. Uh, and there was, and then as soon as they launched, they were selling like 2 million units per month. Um, and then while I was there, they went from being known as a microwave company to overtaking Sony in brand value um, in such a short period of time. Um, and then the culture there, imagine if Steve Jobs was running an army. So, <laughs> so, so it's ruled as fear and then it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's everybody just is, it does what they're told, uh, no question asked. Uh, so things were getting done super fast. Uh, you're always crunching, um, but innovation is harder. Uh, and they also had this surveillance culture, which was unique to Samsung where, um, I don't know if you know this already, but their HR team is this super powerful CIA-like group. Right? It's different from a normal HR uh, right. unit in other companies. Uh, they knew exactly where you are in, in the buildings. So everybody has this um, card that they're carrying and has a sensor in there. So it shows you exactly where you're in the building. If you go into a place you're not supposed to, it, like it rings the bell and they, they, they know. Um, if I have, you know, if I partied too hard last night, you know, the night before and I'm like falling asleep in the bathroom, they call me like, why are you in there? <laughs> um, they have software and the laptop um, that does key, Keep, uh, you know, keystroke detection. So if you're chatting with your friend and you, you, you write, you type words that are sensitive, um, they start recording. Um, they know exactly, they, they, uh, they record exactly when you go in and, in and out. Uh, so they had this, so they're very protective. So, so similar to Apple in that way, where they're very secretive um, and they're very protective of their IP. Um, so yeah, so so that was that was uh, that was different. Um, and the, the group overall, the Samsung group overall, they tried to install this work-life balance early on. Um, so uh, right before I got in there, they had the seven to four uh, work hours. So you get you get to office at seven and you leave at four. And the whole kind of premise behind that was okay, like if you if you can leave your work at four, you can have another, you can do something else after work. You can have another life after work, but that never happened. Obviously, you start at seven, and you just you end up working a lot. When I got there, they switched to eight to five, um, but uh, but you you ended up working late. And they also had this culture where, like you know, it's more of a Korean culture back then, um, and things have changed now. But you can't leave until your boss leaves, and your boss right. never leaves. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, right. It's not. Right. It's not culturally right to, to do that. Uh, so even if you don't, if you're done with your work, you, you still have to stay. Um, so yeah, it was uh, culturally it was it was difficult, um, and they were just becoming a global company. So I I, I saw a lot of these. Uh, they were they were they started recruiting outside of Korea a, a lot more, um, but they just couldn't handle the culture cultural differences. So many of them would come in. 
And I would see them leave in like three to six months. They couldn't survive more than six months, like most of them. Right. right. So I thought to myself, okay, right. if I can survive this long term, maybe like I'll, I'll end up being the only kind of person with that global minded or speak fluent English and all that stuff. So I, I will have more opportunities. Right. And and right. that's exactly what ended up happening. Um, so I ended up getting right. It, so it, in in two thousand five, you raised, you used your global soft skills to raise thirty million dollars from NEA, top tier firm. Uh, for Real Time Worlds Korea, a massive MMO game that recreated Korea. So what was that like to build? I mean, that sounds like a massive undertaking. Like, how do you even start something like that? Uh, so how that happened is, uh, so I was, I was in charge of a, a game phone at, at Samsung. So I was going, going around the world trying to get content for that. Um, and I met with um, Dave Jones and Tony Harmon, who were the co-founders of Real Time Worlds. Um, and they're very well known in the game industry. Um, Dave Jones is creator of Lemmings and, um, and Grand Theft Auto. Wow. Uh, and they were based in, in, in Scotland. Um, and so, so I ended up joining, I became like an early, one of the early employees there. Uh, and they had this amazing talent, right? They had people who designed these amazing, amazing games. But they were based in Scotland and um, they didn't know about the whole Silicon Valley culture. So I was like, hey, you guys, you, you know, you guys can raise a lot of money. You know, you have amazing talent and what you're doing is very unique um, because we had an ambition to kind of, uh, so, so we had three parts. One was Crackdown, which was, which became a, a huge hit on Microsoft. It was a Microsoft exclusive. And then we had a game called APB, which is an online PC game, basically Grand Theft Auto Online. And the third product was um, this virtual world platform where we took these uh, geo, like Google Maps type of data and then we create the whole earth as a gaming platform for developers and for us to create many different types of games on top of that, on top of that platform so that players can actually play games on top of real world. They can play in, in, you know, in right. San Francisco and New York and, and they're like all geographic accurate. So, I don't know, hey, like, so how did you, yeah. So how did you pitch this to NEA? I mean, $30 million in 2005 is a shitload of money. Like what, can you basically like, yeah. So, so I told him like, hey, we have an amazing vision and you know, there are big VCs in, in Silicon Valley who, who love like, who love these big ideas that can transform the world. Um, and so I called up my professor at Cornell who, who was friends with uh, Dick Kramlik who was the founder of NEA. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I created, uh, I actually wrote up a business plan uh, and created a deck. Um, and then I, I went and, and pitched this idea of, you know, recreating the world, the whole earth into a gaming world. It was a bold, big idea. Um, and big VCs in, in, in Sandal Road, they have so much money, they, they, they like these big bets, right? They're, they're, they're looking for the next um, huge multi-billion dollar companies or, or they're looking for the next company that can change the world. So they, they like that big vision. Um, and so they ended up just even though the company was pre-revenue, uh, just based on the team and, and the vision, they were like, hey, we want to put in 30 million all on our own without any other VCs coming in. And so that happened like super fast. Um, and so like the, the company ended up raising 30 million. Um, and uh, because I was based in Korea, I ended up building a development team because there's really good development team for online games in Korea. So I, I ended up uh, leading uh, real-time world's uh, Korean operation. But that just sounds 
ridiculous, right? Like you didn't have revenues, much less a product, and they gave you 30 million. Is, is there anything special you did? Like, what do you credit with that? Is it because you're incredibly handsome as for as an Asian man? Is it because you, you had a really good looking deck? Um, you just happened to have an idea they loved? How do you credit that? I think a um, few things. One is that we had a proven team. So we, we had uh, experienced developers who have hit home runs before. So that's one thing that VCs invest in, in teams and they invest in people more than anything. Um, so having that, um, having a team in Korea and Scotland, we've done huge games before that, that helped. Um, number two is that we weren't just making another game, which is, you can, you can do that, but that's very competitive. Like, hey, we're gonna just make another game on Xbox, just like in competing with other big companies. That, that, would, be, that would be very expensive endeavor. What we were pitching to them is like, hey, we're creating a platform that has never existed before. We're taking these telematics data, and we're gonna recreate the world that we live in in a virtual environment. And, and that, was, that was such a novel concept that back, back then um, that they were willing to bet on it. They were willing to- um, yeah. and, and was there anything about Korea, its density, its people, our culture that you pitched as why um, Korea first? Um, one thing that was unique about Korea from a perspective of the game industry is, is Korea is where online gaming was born. And it's where um, innovations around online gaming, like free to play, microtransactions, it was all kind of invented in Korea. And so Korean people have been doing this longer than others. And so if you're looking for engineers, like server engineers and, and designers who have done this before, you couldn't find it. You couldn't find them outside of mm. Korea at that time. Sure. Um, so this combination of like technical talent in, in, in Korea with um, kind of the creative talent in, in Scotland, they've been doing amazing work in gaming. Um, you know, they, they, they created Lemming for instance, which was the first game where you can individually select units and, and assign different right. tasks. I love that That's game. Like, love yeah, that it's, game. it's amazing creativity, right? They, they're, and then Grand Theft Auto was his first game that didn't have a linear storyline, like you can do anything you want in the game. Um, those type of innovations, creativity, um, was happening in, in Scotland. So you combine that with kind of the technical talent of Korea, it was, that was a, good, was a good pitch because of that. Interesting, interesting. We see a lot of rising technical talent in Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, even Russia. Uh, I don't wanna say even Russia. I, I, I say even because I don't have that much access to Russia, but you know, Russia, of course, as well. Croatia, Hungary really all over the CEE region in Baltics. Um, you know, uh, the, the ability for um, someone like you to get this many users, it, I don't wanna downplay the technical achievements that you and your team have had, but there must've been some great marketing achievements to get those users at that scale, no? Or, or was it really a build it and they came? Yeah, that's the hard part. Um, so for Power Rangers Legacy Wars, for instance, um, the brand helped a lot. 
uh, we we timed it so that the game launched together with with a movie that Lionsgate right. um, produced at, at the time. Um, and then uh, we got heavy featuring from from Apple and Google because it was the first fighting game uh, where you're always playing with another human being. Um, so there was that innovation, novelness uh, to the game. So yeah, you have to have all those aligned. You, you have to create a game that has that provides some sort of a new experience to the, to the gamers to get the attention of the platform holders. Um, and then uh, unless you have a big marketing budget, uh, getting an IP that's already known by, by players. And you also have to select the IP so that it has a deep history. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that um, and, and, and the IP can bring in users without having to spend a huge market, um, a budget for U UA. Um, so right, right, that's one example. Right. Pokemon Go, right? Yeah. 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 Pokemon Go. Um, there's a great gaming studio, small independent gaming studio called Totem Games. Shout out to Totem Games. Um, and they released a carnivore, like a, a carnivorous dinosaur uh, game on iOS, right around, and they timed it with the latest Jurassic Park movie. So even though it wasn't, it had no, you know, financial affiliation to uh, the people that made Jurassic Park or the movie because they timed it well uh, and found a compatible theme. Uh, it was a super successful mobile game for them. Um, so that's a really good point. We talked about Korea a little bit before. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. On the subject of <clears throat> Koreans and Asians, um, after you know, your real-time experience, you started a unrelated startup called Ivy Connection, which I'm guessing it was like, it was gonna let every Asian American son and daughter get into Harvard or medical school, right? Um, <laughs> why, why do you, <laughs> only Asians would understand that joke. It's not racist, I promise you. Um, <laughs> what, it's, it's such a departure for you. How, why? It's uh, actually, IV Connection was, um, I, I started IV Connection right after my, my grad school before going to, going to Samsung. So, so right after school, um, I, um, I basically created this system and a formula that quite accurately predicted a student's percent probability of getting into a specific college. Um, so I just, I developed this program to increase those chances because I knew what moved the levers um, and also help clients actually make the right choices. Because everybody's oh, I'm gonna just, you know, do early applications to Harvard, even though he has no chance of getting into, he has like 1% chance of getting to Harvard, but early application is actually a really great tool to, if you, if you do it with the right school, um, to increase your chance of getting in that school. So making the right choices, picking the right schools, um, and also like consulting them in terms of where they should spend their time to basically optimize uh, their chance of getting into, into the best college that they can. Uh, so it was, it was, a, it was like a, basically a program. So I, I was doing my graduate studies in operations research, which is all about optimization. So I kind of used that knowledge to create this, I had kind of came into this discovery here. And so I created this new service and it just took off like crazy. Like everybody wanted to sign up in, in Korea. 
um, every family who had ambition <laughs> or Yuhak Seng family, um, and a lot of them are family that have money, right? They're <laughs> right. Everybody was signing right. up. I had to be blind. Right. Uh, but I had to go to Samsung, so I actually ended up um, hiring a CEO. I had to hire a lot of people. Here's my program. You guys run it. Um, and, you know, I stayed on as a board member, uh, just kind of helping out. Um, and, and the CEO that I would hire would turn because it's so stressful to work with these parents in Korea. I'm sure you know right. what the Korean parents are like. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, uh, that's, that's how it ended up happening. Yeah. Right. I, I, my next question was, who was the worst? The parents, the kids, or the teachers? But I'm going to guess. By the far, the parents. <laughs> By far. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. They were, uh, there were some crazy parents there. Yeah. Who, who acquired it and, and, and why? So like on the seventh year of running it, um, I had a management in there that was, being, that was doing a good job and they were pretty successful. Um, and they wanted to kind of do this in the long term. So, so they raised money to, to, to buy the company. Uh, and I thought wow. that was pretty cool. Okay. Um, okay. Because I was, getting, I, I was not able, I, I was getting more and more involved in my other startups and I wasn't spending that much time here anyways. Um, so Got they ended it. up buying me out. Yeah. Okay. Then, well, let's talk about Nurian. You, you went into this next and you raised another 25 million from NEA. Uh, did you learn anything from your previous uh, ventures that um, helped you exit better at Nurian? Like, were you able to get better terms, get more buyers to the table? I was way more savvy by then um, in terms of how to pitch uh, and how to negotiate term sheets um, and things like that. But uh, so when I was raising money for for Nurian. Um, Timing helped me because at, the, at that time, uh, China was just opening up their, um, the, the online gaming market in China was just taking off like a rocket, um, as, as well as other kind of internet companies. And so it was fashionable at that time for Silicon Valley VCs to set up offices in Beijing and- um, I remember that. Yeah, and in Shanghai. And they were all kind of trying to find companies to invest in that area. Um, and the strategy that we, the mission that we had with, with Nurian was to uh, take the development talent uh, and innovative you know, work that we do in Korea and then kind of exploit the Chinese market and have launched these games mainly, mainly in, in, in China. Um, so that, that clicked really well with, uh, with these VCs. Um, so we, we, we ended up getting uh, multiple term sheets from Silicon Valley VCs. Um, yeah, and, and so uh, so we ended up uh, raising pretty good money at, at good valuation. Again, like b before, this was all before revenue or before before launch. Right. right. You say you were a lot more sophisticated the second time around. What advice would you have given your first time around the block, Taehoon, younger self, um, in terms of one, raising money, and two, selling your company? Well, on the first time around, I spent a lot of money on the uh, on the business plan and on the financials, um, and then I quickly realized that uh, you know for for seed or Series A fundraising, um, 
they know that like VC, the smart VCs know like you can have the best plan, but it will never work out that way. You can have like the best numbers, like y'all have amazing chart with like all this spreadsheet analysis, um, but they don't believe it anyways. You know, they've, they've seen it enough to know that you can't predict it. Uh, as soon as you, as soon as you start, all the planning actually is, is too old. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would tell myself to spend less time with that kind of stuff, but more on kind of um, putting together a, a simple but very compelling story because fundraising is all about storytelling. You're telling a story about how you see the world, how you see things changing in the future. They're buying the future basically, right? Um, so kind of crafting that so that it's one, very easy to understand and, and simple and that and second, it's, it's, it's a very big vision. It, if, if it works out, it's a, it's a massive home run. Um, and three, uh, kind of taking the time to craft the story so that uh, the VCs who are listening to it can feel like, okay, a lot of these risks are, are mitigated here because he has thought, of, thought about these risks um, instead of trying to avoid the risks. Um, so those things are much more important than putting together a plan with all these numbers and graphs and charts. Got it. Got it. What, what advice would you give your younger self in terms of selling your startup? Um, well, it's, it's kind of related, I think. Um, you know, uh, it's kind of similar to hockey. Like when, when, when Gretzky said that, you know, um, I think he said that he, he skates to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck has been or, or is. Uh, so it's similar. So like if you're if you're trying to raise money and also uh, maximize chance of exit later, then it really comes down to timing and how how, how you predict the future, right? Um, so you have to be able to read the trends of how the industry is moving, um, and then by the by the time you launch you can't be too early or we can't be too late. It's, the timing has to be right. Uh, this is why a startup is, is so difficult um, and high failure rate because even if you execute perfectly uh, and if you're too early and there's no market product market fit, then, then you're dead. Even if you've created the best culture, everything, you've done everything perfectly, if the timing is not right, if there's no product market fit, then, then you're dead. Um, yeah, I was uh, advisor to a startup in San Francisco called Six Connect, a small group of super smart guys, Harvard, Stanford folks, and uh, I raised two million dollars for them from Hummer Windblad, my uh, one of my former VCs. Um, you know, they were doing IPv6 address management, and they they are just too early, you know. Hmm. Um, you can, you can 19, 18 space, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, IPv4 addresses. It just, you know, it's like it wasn't a huge problem yet for a lot of major companies. And um, they kind of, you know, drifted into um, survival status uh, because of that. That's a good point. Let That's me ask you the, uh, about another st- Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go but ahead. This is a big mistake. I want to say that's usually, it's, it's the 80% of the time, the mistake is that you're too early. Yeah. My mistake as an investor is I'm too late, right? Like I'm thinking of buying <laughs> Tesla stock now, right? Uh, let's talk about Pixelberry. What the hell is a Pixelberry and what happened for it to be acquired so quickly since we're talking about acquisitions? Yeah, um, 
Pixelberry was actually uh, a spin-off from, from Nurian software. Uh, so for uh, at Nurian, um, we were basically building this hyper-realistic, uh, I call it like a virtual social network system with um, avatars that had uh, physics in the hair and cloth for the first time. So it was, it was very realistic type of a, a virtual world. Um, and then, and then we built games on top of it. Like we built the music game on top of it and things like that. But because it was so realistic, uh, it wasn't very accessible. Like you had to have like a high end PC to, to run it. Right. Uh, so, but at that time there were a lot of technologies being invented at that time that would, that try to solve that problem. Um, so Pixel Bear was a spinoff from, from Nurian where we tried to kind of uh, bring similar type of gameplay experiences, but on, uh, on like low-end PCs and on browsers and, and, and things like that. Um, but then when we, when we launched, it would, we were kind of a uh, little bit, um, the, game, the, the gaming market was shifting uh, to more kind of core gaming experiences. Um, so it wasn't working out basically. And so uh, what, what happened is I, we, uh, we ended up creating a, um, a new company, but other than just letting everything kind of die, we ended up purchasing some of the assets that was created in Pixelberry, uh, which was much better for the investors in Pixelberry than just letting it, letting it die out. Right. I'm an investor, um, excuse me, advisor um, for a startup called Juice Labs and they're virtualizing GPUs. And today I just got an incredible demo that blew me away. They, they showed me um, one of the co-founders playing Doom um, on a cheap laptop computer uh, because the GPU is on another device far away. Uh, and I think the, the main question for them will be if they're, you know, too early with a virtualization technology like this. Um, so that's interesting that you guys spun out Pixelberry. Um, at your current company, Enway, if I can get back to mm -hmm. Enway, you have mm -hmm. over 10 major VC firms. Uh, is this a pain in the ass? Like how many VCs do you have on your board? Uh, having a lot of investors and VCs uh, is not really a pain in the ass. You ended up getting there. Uh, over time, um, so usually you create a you create a template, uh, and you update everybody the same way. So it's it's not really that painful, and they're all kind of they're all very similar in terms of what they're looking for. Okay. Um, but what's painful is like if you have a large board, then it starts to become very painful. So I I would advise any kind of startup uh, CEOs to try to have the smallest board possible, um, and and there's a few reasons for this. Is one is <laughs> scheduling is a nightmare if you have a large board because everybody is so 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 busy um and then second i don't know about it's, it's like a human characteristic where if you're with like three people it's people are a lot more engaged than when you're in a meeting with like 10 people so in the large meetings people tend to be more they don't lean in they're like you know they're more kind of they're not engaged as much um so they're not it's not actually not not that effective and then um also, like anyone you add to the board, it, it kind of it's it's all about chemistry, right? You have to you want to have a good chemistry, you want to have good culture in your board. But every time you ask somebody, 
that kind of um, you don't know what you're going to get. So as long as the board is, is small, um, I think that's that's fine. Right. So uh, I've always imagined that uh, super large boards, you know, would have people kind of push you in different directions. Like I, I remember a board member asked me once, can you get a halo effect on your products? And I thought, what? We, we have one fucking product. Like, are, are you confusing us with another portfolio company? Because we have one fucking product. <laughs> it's a SaaS product. Like, this is not Apple. There's no halo effect. I don't know if you just heard that buzzword in your car and got excited, but like, <laughs> you're grilling me over this, right? Um, Okay, but you can manage 10. I, I, I don't know if I could do that. I, I would like to think I could, but I don't know. Well, well not, not um, all of them was on the board. You know, my board was pretty small. Um, this v, the, the VC, I didn't give the board seat to all the VCs that invested. Ah, got it, got it, got it. Um, how do you handle kind of uh, being in control? You know, from, uh, in my first startup, you know, I was asked to resign as the CEO so that they could get a, you know, professional uh, CEO who happened to be a white guy. <laughs> you know, uh, and, I, and I think we spoke about this before. I'm, I'm not saying it was racist uh, at all. I'm just saying that, you know, in the very early 2000s and late 90s, um, Silicon Valley yet wasn't comfortable with a lot of Indian American or Asian American CEOs, you know, raising a bunch of money and running a multi-million dollar enterprise that they thought you could take public. Um, do you have any advice for first-time founders when choosing a neutral board member, right? Because that's kind of the, one of the first big board decisions that young founders make, right? You raise five, $10 million, then your VC is on your board and they say, you know what? We need a neutral board member. Do you have any advice for founders going through this the first time? Advice that I usually give my founders, um, because first time founders, and I did the same thing, but they tend to, they tend to um, overemphasize on the valuation. Okay, the valuation is the most important thing. Right. I'm just gonna go with, I'm just gonna go with the term sheet that gives me the highest valuation. I'm just gonna that's like right. valuation and their ego is like almost like that's the same thing. <laughs> um, but it's the valuation is actually not as important. You know, like you, what's important is is making the company successful, and your chance of making the comp company successful is much greater if you have good good chemistry with with your investors. Um, uh, and and so the advice I give to my to 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 founders um, is if you're able to, and usually you have to do this, like you have to get into a competitive situation. Like if you only get a one term sheet, usually that term sheet will go away. It'll get cold feet. Like why am I the only one? <laughs> you have to have more than term sheets, right? So the the most important thing is that you have at least two term sheets. More term sheets, they get more term sheets. Right, so, um, it's like they breed. <laughs> um, so try to get to a point where um, you have this competitive environment, having more, 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 uh, many, many terms you're competing. Once you do that, don't just go to the highest. Don't just negotiate or or kind of optimize for the highest valuation. Um, valuation and control is almost the same thing. You're giving up equity for giving them some control. Um, so negotiate 
not for valuation, but for the control of your company. So small board, you know, they're gonna have all these terms in the in the uh, in the agreement, things like okay, you have to get our approval on hiring or in compensation. Uh, you know, boards. We want two boards, like whatever. Try to negotiate all this stuff so that you 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 take control of the board, that you decide the compensation and you you decide who, who you hire. And they're going to want some control. Like they're going to make sure that the CEO's compensation is done by a compensation committee. And maybe this, you know, the C-level executives, you have to, you know, get their approval. But um, for for anything else, like the founders should try to have have control over that. Um, and and if you do, then you can also block yourself from getting in place as well, which is which is what right. uh, actually right. happens right. pretty often. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the 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 secrets or the the ugly truths of startups that raise a lot of money is that um, uh, many many times the founders get fired, right? Um, I think one of the things that really hurt me was when I my first startup finally IPO'd. They didn't fucking invite me, right? And um, I saw them. Them. Um, I saw the board of Uber do the same thing to Travis at Uber, right? He had yeah, built through yeah. his grit, you know, and his vision and his toughness and all of that. Um, he had built this wonderful company that had made board members and investors, you know, incredibly wealthy. And yet, you know, they, they didn't invite him to New York. Um, so I, uh, I gotta really echo and thank you for this one piece of advice. Uh, I tell founders the same thing. Like, don't ever step off the board until you're absolutely certain what your personal outcome is gonna be. What your personal mm -hmm. outcome is gonna be. And you're absolutely certain about that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, moving on to a, a more joyful topic. Uh, recently, <laughs> more and more professional actors have been in, appearing in video games like Keanu Reeves and Cyberpunk, which I am like, counting the days um oh, you're a gamer then. and norman Re oh i lifelong gamer oh, atari awesome. 2600 that's that's where that's <laughs> that's where it all started baby uh, and norman Reedus is in death stranding how far away do you think hollywood is from merging with the game industry where it's going to be a rite of passage for a a-lister to also be in a, a major game production? I think it's already happening. More and more game companies are now starting up in LA because of these reasons. If you look at a lot of games that are coming out now, you mentioned Death Stranding, but you know, there's Last of Us 2. Um, they're all mocapped uh, with real actors. Storytelling and cinematography is now on par with movies um, and with the release of PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X, Unreal Engine 5. It's going to get even, um, even closer. Um, and, and, and interesting things happening as well, where because uh, kind of the, the visual fidelity and the animation um, and the graphics is getting so incredibly realistic, uh, you're going to, we're going to start having these characters that are created um, from games that almost behave like actors and actors in real life. What I mean by that is like, you have this character in the game, but so many people love this character that this character can step off that game and can exist in Instagram, can exist in YouTube, <laughs> can have their own social account, um, exi exist in other movies, exist in other games. Um, so one of the pred predictions I have is like, you're gonna s start seeing talent agencies 
um, their own talents that are virtual. They never get old. They never give you problems. <laughs> you own everything right. they, they own. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the actor John Bernal, and uh, mm. I just killed his ass in Ghost Recon. It was awesome. It was <laughs> awesome. I blew him away with a shotgun. It was great. Um, uh, let me ask uh, our final four questions, um, and they're really career questions for young developers. How much harder is it for you as a hiring manager to find good developers for the game industry? Um, or, or is that not the right question? Um, do young developers that you hire, do they ha have the same skills as a typical web app developer? Or are you looking for something different? Uh, it depends on, 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 the, um, on whether, you're, whether you're looking for programmers, artists, or game designers. Uh, it's from our experience. It's typically harder to find good game designers, and and the reason is because it's hard harder to bet them. Uh, with artists, you can see how they draw. With programmers, you can see you can do tests in front of them. Um, but with game designers, it's it's much harder. Um, also, backend engineers, the server engineers, they they are also super hard to uh, to find. And that and the reason because reason for that is because every service whether it's gaming or apps or websites, they all need backend engineers. So they're much, they're much more in demand. Um, but, you know, client engineers, animators, or, or, or kind of professions that are very kind of heavily tied to the game industry, um, they also, they're also in the craft because they love games and because they love the industry. Uh, so for those, um, it's much, much easier to, uh, to find and hire. Got it. Do you think new game developers should start with a mobile game first because it's easier? Is it easier? No, I think mobile is super competitive. And uh, for mobile free to play, you have to have a pretty sizable team to do live ops and, and do quick updates. Um, I think by far the easiest platform for your first game would be PC slash Steam. Yeah. Interesting. That's yeah, not the answer yeah. I was expecting. Okay. Yeah. What's your view about pre-orders, DLC, microtransactions, loot boxes? Are they a necessary evil? This is a question from our CTO at JetBridge. Uh, I don't think there, I don't think there's not, there's not anything wrong with with them. Um, you just have to design them right. Uh, you know, Fortnite has done an amazing job of kind of innovating there with their they invented this whole battle pass system, which is which is awesome. Um, and loot boxes, which is most kind of a little bit more hardcore for Asian games, um, those tend to be almost a little bit too gambling like. Um, right. So that so that so that's something that uh, the game industry, I think, is especially in the Western market, is trying to steer away from. Um, uh, and the game industry as a whole here uh, is a little bit different from Asia, where pay to win is more acceptable in Asia. Over here, people peek all over it. Uh, and so I think there's some innovation happening right now uh, to figure out how to monetize better. Uh, there's some uh, blockchain technologies also uh, being, being developed um, to help with this um, so that the gamers can also monetize off of the games uh, not only just, just the publishers. 
but there's a lot of things that's that's, that's happening here um and uh and i, I think things are going to improve significantly over time okay last question and we call this the peter Thiel question because we stole this from the great peter Thiel. what's mm -hmm. the one thing you believe about the gaming industry today that most vcs don't know or are wrong about including your board members <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. No. So, uh, streaming has been so. There has been a lot of startups in the streaming section, sector, like on live, um, Gaikai, and then now uh, you know uh, with XCloud and Stadia from 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 Google, um, and everybody's kind of saying oh, it's 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 not going to work because. Google Stadia is also not getting that good of attraction online right. kind of fa failed. Um, and so people are kind of uh, writing it off saying that streaming is not going to work uh, uh, in the industry. And also I think a lot of VCs are thinking that way. But, but I think streaming is, the, is going to work over time. It's just a little bit early. Um, the, the experience is, 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 is great. Um, if you're uh, playing, if you're using your TV um, with the white, white, uh, white setup, um, but I think it can get to a point where you can actually design game experiences that brand new and can only happen in a streaming environment. Uh, once that happens, I think gamers are going to flock to streaming, and, and streaming is going to take off. Interesting. Right now, can, can you give me a can you give me a Keystone example of that, like? Yeah, like right now on, on, on Stadia and, and because there hasn't been enough time, um, games on streaming are same games that you can actually play on PlayStation just on streaming. But because, it, because it's streaming and because um, the GPU and CPU calculation is being done, not locally, but on servers, um, a lot of these restrictions around game design is lifted. For instance, uh, usually when you play a game, you play with three or four people, or for advanced games like Fortnite, you can play with 100 people. But as soon as you lift that local thing, uh, local uh, limitation off, you can start having thousands of people in a one game arena. So maybe there will be a game where um, it's like a castle siege type of game or like a war with thousands of players battling in real time. That's something that has never happened before. Um, so mm -hmm. that like, a game that creates experiences where people have never seen it or played before. Um, those type of games don't even need marketing budget. It just goes virally uh, and people are curious mm -hmm. and they want to try it. And if the game is good enough to have the players stick around, that's when you have like a Fortnite effect or, or, or recently the Fall Guy effect. Have you played Fall Guy? No, not yet. You should. You should. It's like a game show. It's crazy. Um, it's just going crazy virally. Uh, but only because it's a new experience. There has never been anything like that in, in the market. Um, so that's one example. Another example is like being able to see what uh, my other teammates, like let's say you, me, and three other guys are on the same team, but I can actually see your screen. You can see my screen. Maybe there's a smaller screen in your, in your screen. And you can have like much more tactical cooperation between people. 
that can't happen mm -hmm. on local devices because the, your local device is not powerful enough to render five, six different games mm -hmm. that are happening. Um, another example is being seeing another person's gameplay and like hopping right in, right? Because like if I don't have the game, how can I play? Right. Right. For, for PlayStation, I'll have to have a disc or I have to have, I have to download it for hours. But with streaming, right. like I can see you play and like, hey, I'm gonna join. I can join immediately. Um, and so you can have these gameplay experiences where the audience and the players are interacting that affects right. the gameplay. And something like that also is right. not possible. So if you enable things that's right. not possible now, um, that's only possible in streaming and, and create game designs around that, like Nintendo does this the best, all right? They create this hardware, like when they first came out with the Wii, the kind of controller that, that tracks um, its movement, they create a gaming experience that's only possible on that hardware and that has never before existed. Um, so that's kind of the key, I think. And, um, and I think once there are content like that start popping up in stream, that's when it's going to start to work. So Taehoon and Kim sees a future where a game can be published basically on the internet and it could go viral, right? Um, I guess you're saying a hundred X, a thousand X easier than games do today. Uh, what do you mean, 100x easier? Well, for example, um, yeah. as I said, I'm a gamer. I stuck in a MotoGP disc in my Xbox, and the disc is scratched. <laughs> I got to buy another uh, disc. Um, you imagine a future where I can go to this channel somewhere on my TV, or even through some game box that I have, and um, I can just surf thousands of potential games and just drop right in. Yeah, well, it's actually already happening with, with Stadia, um, but they're not kind of getting the traction right now they need. So people are kind of writing it off. They're, they're saying that's not going to work, but I think streaming is going to- So let me ask my, let me ask a follow up to our last question. What is that sure. technical leap? What is the technical leap that has to happen for people on Reddit to stop complaining about Stadia and actually grow its user base? I don't think it's the technical leap. I think they, they need to have an exclusive game that's only possible on Stadia that is so good that even with technical problems that people are still going gaga over it. When Fortnite first launched, you know, they had a lot of technical problems because it was scaling so, it was, it was growing so fast, they couldn't scale fast enough. Uh, same thing with Fall Guy that's, that's um, hot right now. They're, they're having all these connection problems. There, there are so many technical problems. People don't care because the game's so good or because they want to play. Um, so it's actually a content problem rather than technical Interesting. problem. Interesting. So, so Stadia needs a Halo. Yeah, like Halo was exclusive to Xbox. Stadia needs yeah, yeah. their own title. It's only uh, on Stadia. And that's, that, that creates a game experience that's only possible on streaming. Interesting. That is not the answer I thought I would get. Taehoon, Kim, thank you so much. Um, given a, quite a few answers I, I didn't expect. Um, we really loved having you on our podcast. And I know our audience is going to find it super helpful. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.